0: images are really powerful i have, i maybe had only been a christian for a, one year at the time and yet i remember looking up at that film and watching the the actor who was playing martin luther you know at the diet of worms standing before those grim-faced evil catholic authorities and making his stand unless i am convinced by scripture my conscience is captive by the word of god here i stand i can do no other god help me amen and I remember my eyes being filled with tears. From the beginning, really, of my Christian life, I mean, if there was anyone I wanted to be like, it was the great apostle in my mind, Martin Luther.
1: Well, hello, and welcome to another tame and non-controversial episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken, where we tackle uh, all kinds of issues that never cause really any kind of debate among anybody. Uh, This is a (laughs) production of the Coming Home Network. You can find us at chnetwork.org. You can also check us out on our online community if you want to connect with uh, fellow travelers who are interested in questions related to the Catholic faith. Go over to community.chnetwork.org. Dot org, And if you're someone who has appreciated what we're doing here, um, we do have to pay for lighting setups and cameras and things. And if you want to help out with the expenses of that, you can always go to chnetwork.org and click on donate. Ken, we get to talk about a figure over the next several episodes who is this, well, again, he's, an, he's not really a controversial figure at all now that I think about it.
0: <laughs> all these understatements. Hey, hey, Matt, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well, Ken, and I'm a little bit nervous it's good, it's about to what see these you. next few episodes are going to go like.
0: No, I'm not nervous at all. Wait, okay, we're going back into the Reformation, and what we're going to do is we're going to do a series on the life and teaching of Martin Luther and, uh, and, the, and the Protestant Reformation that he was a leader of and one of the main instigators of. So that's what we're going to be talking about. In fact, the series is titled Luther, the rest of the story.
1: Do I get to do my right. Paul Harvey uh, shtick? Luther. It, it, the rest of the stuff. If you can stil- do
0: it. Oh, did he always Page do the paper? Two. Yeah. Uh huh.
1: Paul Harvey. Bose okay. Radios. Yes.
0: Well, look, I love uh, the study of the Reformation era. I love the study of Reformation characters. I've taught a lot about Luther in the past. And so, no, I'm excited to do this with you. So l- let's dig in. And let me apologize. I uh, Not apologize, but some who want everything wrapped up in 30 minutes like the TV show. Sorry, it's not going to happen that way. I, I want to develop Luther's life, and I want to develop the the heart of his teaching, and it's going to take us some weeks to do it, like as it has taken us weeks on other subjects that we've tackled. All right? Are you ready, Matt? And I,
1: yeah, I'm ready, and I also want okay. people to realize that this is probably the nicest you'll ever hear a couple of Catholics ever be to Martin Luther, because the goal here is to... Not just look at the arguments and say why we disagree with them, but trying to think about like, where do these arguments come from? They don't appear out of a vacuum. They're not something that no. just drop out of the sky. Yeah, they they're, they come from a place. They come from a line of thinking. They come from a series of experiences and they come from a series of frustrations with things. Um, honestly, mm-hmm. several of them are, are worth being frustrated about. So yeah, there's a lot to get to when you, when you unpack a guy like Luther. He's not a simple guy to sum up in a sentence or no. two.
0: No, no. And you and I both come from evangelical Protestant backgrounds where we have a real, a real love for all of that and all that it meant and all that it was for us. And so that's important too. Um, we want to explain the process of thought that led us from where we were. I was a Baptist pastor. You were a Methodist knucklehead. And, uh, you know, from where we were to, to the Catholic Church. And so, yeah, we want to approach these subjects with a great deal of respect and affection. And let me begin at the end, all right? Martin Luther died on February 18th, 1546. Uh, Luther had traveled to Eisleben, the town in which he was born, um, to settle a dispute between two brothers, both of them counts of the, the, the city of Mansfeld. And believing that he had little time left, because he was ill at the time, Uh, He he joked with his friends, and here's a quotation from Luther. When I get home to Wittenberg, I will lie down in my coffin and give the worms a fat doctor to feed on, okay? Right away, something of what I love about Martin Luther, something uh, that I loved about him, one of the most colorful writers on earth, and I, I, I just love that. When I get home to Wittenberg, I will lie down in my coffin and give the worms a fat doctor to feed on. Well, it wasn't to be. On his deathbed, there in Iceland, and he never made it back. Uh, he never made it back home to Wittenberg. His good friend Justice Jonas, who was with him, asked him, "Reverend Father, will you die steadfast in Christ and in the doctrine you have preached?" Luther looked up and he answered, "Yes." That very day, Matt, a messenger was sent, announcing Luther's death. And Luther scholar Heiko Obermann, in his book luther man between god and the devil he describes the scene i want to read it to you it was early morning and as usual during the semester philip melanchthon luther's longtime colleague and comrade in arms stood in the lecture hall explicating paul's epistle to the romans for his students in the middle of the lecture a messenger burst in with the news of luther's death melanchthon struggled for control unable to speak but finally his voice faltering told his students what had happened. Breaking out in anguish with Elisha's horrified cry as he saw the prophet Elijah ascending to heaven in the chariot of fire, Melanchthon said, The charioteer of Israel has fallen. An armed escort, Matt, accompanied Luther's body to the graveyard. Thousands came to say goodbye to him. And at Luther's funeral, Melanchthon spoke of him as, quoting again, God's instrument for renewing the church. Luther Melanchthon said was God's instrument. Now, it may be difficult for some Catholics and maybe some Protestants who have converted to Catholicism to understand that this is how countless Protestant Christians, our brothers and sisters, feel about Martin Luther. But but, but it's entirely true. This is how I felt, and, and for many years, I had been, to tell you a little story, I'd been a Christian only a very short time when I first saw the old black-and-white classic film, Luther. Um, it was in a world religions class that Tina and I were taking. Um, the teacher of this class, by the way, he had, he had studied as a um, Jesuit. And I, th- I think he was planning on entering the priesthood, but he didn't do it. And anyway, he was teaching world religions. And Tina and I noticed something, Matt. When he taught us about Islam, It was, it, it was with with tremendous sympathy. When he taught us about Buddhism, tremendous sympathy, Hinduism, Jane, everything. He approached all of it with tremendous sympathy. And then when he came to Christianity, his focus completely changed. And suddenly his, his entire um, motive and his entire plan was just to tear the Bible apart, you know, and show us how it wasn't true. And so I went up after class one night and I complained to him. I, I just pointed out to him, the the radical change in his approach when he came to Christianity. And he saw what I was saying and he kind of apologized. And so the next week in class, he brought in this black and white film of Martin Luther and he just played it. You know, he couldn't bring himself to say anything nice about Christianity, but he but he played this film. And, you know, uh, images are really powerful. I, have, I maybe had only been a Christian for a, one year at the time. And yet I remember looking up at that film and watching the, the actor who was playing Martin Luther, you know, at the Diet of Worms, standing before those grim-faced, evil Catholic authorities and making his stand. Unless I am convinced by Scripture, my conscience is captive by the Word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. And I remember my eyes being filled with tears from the beginning, really, of my Christian life. I mean, if there was anyone I wanted to be like, it was the great... Apostle in my mind, Martin Luther, and I wonder do do you, do you have similar feelings about any of the reformers or or any experience? Well, like that I mean, Luther's
1: life? the. I don't think I knew as much about the reformers until I probably got to to Asbury College and uh, mm-hmm. had to sort of wrestle with which was which and and really realize that um every single one of these were saying in their own way. I'm convinced unless I'm convinced by scripture my conscience is captive to the word of God as I understand it. Like, I didn't know that those were all kind of in different places. And and it wasn't probably until then that I, I, I really kind of began to get a sense of the distinctions and started to realize mm-hmm. that Luther, theologically, was no friend of my tradition, which was the Wesleyan holiness tradition by way of the Church of England. Um, mm-hmm. That's a different kind of movement than what was going on on the continent of Europe. Um, but we still all, I mean, I remember at Asbury, we uh, read... Uh, you know, as though we were reading a uh hagiography, hey we read Roland Baton's uh Here I Stand, which I know we're gonna get into through the course mm-hmm. of this mm-hmm. series. And um, again those lines, it was like your uh you know, flag in the dirt, right? It's your sword you know, stuck into the sand and saying, I'm going to die here and I don't care what happens because I'm going to be true to the word of God. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that motivates you, right? This is stuff you can get excited about. And um, again, I I would go on later to sort of realize that, you know, all kinds of people, I mean, when I learned about Luther at first, it was in public school, uh, right? And we didn't talk about, I didn't hear about him from the pulpit, right? There was no reason to necessarily invoke him from the pulpit, other than to say, you know, it's a good thing that we're not all Catholics anymore, but we were proud of him, right? We were, we gravitated mm-hmm. towards the, the, the spell that he broke, right? He, I mean, he, he made it possible for, you know, all of us to be able to go to whatever kind of church we wanted to, right? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of reasons yeah. why, why Luther was seen as a hero, even if we didn't. I mean, and I found out more and more as I went through, you know, my own Wesleyan. Formation in college especially that we definitely disagreed with him like significantly on a whole bunch of points but he was still considered kind mm-hmm. of a hero right.
0: right well you know very much the same for me in fact it's been more than four decades now since that night when i watched that film and i i, I do want to emphasize during those 40 years or so I've read a number of Luther's works, The Bondage of the Will, The Freedom of the Christian Man, The Babylonian Captivity of the Church, his commentaries on Galatians and Romans and many other things. I went to a Protestant seminary where Luther was held in the highest regard. I took a course there in Luther's theology. Um, Luther was a guy in many ways, and now I'm Catholic, and now you're Catholic. Okay. And, and so for me, does this mean then that I see nothing good in Luther? As, um, many would say, um, does this mean that I believe the rumor, for instance, that was circulating at the time that Luther's mother, Margareta, had had relations with the devil at a bathhouse in Eisleben and that Martin was not a human child at all? That was actually, (laughs) that was actually a rumor. No, I, I can announce, I mean, I'm going to make my public announcement. No, I do not believe that. Um, but do I think that Luther then was entirely wrong even in his critique of the Catholic Church, especially the more, his moral critique of the Catholic Church? And the answer is, well, obviously, the answer is no. The answer is not at all. In fact, the Church has admitted, and I want to make this clear, that much of Luther's critique of the moral state of the Church at the time was true. The Church in the early 16th century The Catholic Church, it stood in desperate need of spiritual reform. There was corruption from the bottom to the top, from the front to the back. In fact, in 1523, and Matt, this is only two years after Luther stood before the Diet of Worms and spoke those words, you know, here I stand, I can do no other. In 1523, two years after this, Pope Hadrian VI confessed publicly, and this is what he said, we know that for years there have been many abominable offenses in spiritual matters, and violations of the commandments committed at this holy see. yea, yes, that everything has in fact been perverted. What a statement. Everything has been in, has in fact been perverted. The first thing that must be done Pope Hadrian VI said is to reform the curia, the Vatican leadership, which he called the origin of all evil. quote unquote. So the position of the church has never been to insist that everything Martin Luther had to say or the other reformers was wrong. In fact, much of what he had to say was right, much of it was true, and the Council of Trent that was called, the the Counter-Reformation Council that was called in that very same century, the 16th century, was called in part to deal with these uh, issues that were raised by the reformers and, and to answer them. So the church has never insisted that Luther was entirely wrong or that the reformers were entirely wrong. In fact, though, what the church has insisted, and we need to make a clear distinction on this, is that the key solutions that Martin Luther gave to the church's problems, summed up in his doctrines of sola fide, justification by faith alone, and sola scriptura, Scripture as the sole infallible rule of faith and practice, which you have alluded to here. You're talking about how you came to learn that Luther set us free, in a sense, to all of us decide whatever church we wanted to go to based upon our reading of Scripture. What the church has insisted upon is that these two key solutions, the material principle of the Reformation, sola fide, the formal principle of the Reformation, sola scriptura, were wrong and are wrong and had catastrophic consequences at the time, shattering Christendom in two, really. In fact, the split that occurred um, that resulted from Luther's head-on collision with the Catholic Church is one of the great tragedies of Christian history. It's led to hundreds and thousands even of varieties of Protestant denominations, sects. It's led to cults of all kinds and independent churches and whatnot. So,
1: yeah here's what and, i want to and, do and in this yeah go ahead i was just going to say as you're saying all that you know i'm reminded of the um the sentiment by gk chesterton who says something to the effect and yeah. I, I can't quote it exactly from memory that uh the reformer is a uh, very often quite right about what is wrong uh but he is often quite mm-hmm. wrong in <laughs> you know how he tries to make about it right right <laughs> uh uh and and uh that's very much the case i mean what's what's fascinating mm-hmm. is and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I was uh, able to attend a, a conference at Catholic University in 2017 on the 500th anniversary of of the Reformation. And it's just amazing to be in this room with Catholic theologians and uh, representatives from mm-hmm. the German Bishops Conference and representative from the Lutheran Church in the United States of America, the German Lutherans, the American Lutherans, the Catholics all in one room. And it's amazing how much of you know has has been made in progress even on questions like justification um but Mm -hmm. you know obviously there's a gulf that still remains but um it it is fascinating to to take a look with the hindsight i mean it's not like everybody could just Mm -hmm. read everybody's blogs back then and sort it all out and say what needed to be said there at trent having the full benefit of the digital libraries that we have at our fingertips uh it's I mean, there's no wonder that the world blew up at the time. Um, But it is, you know, the more we know, the more we realize the church had a lot of problems. And Luther, some of that anger Mm -hmm. was pretty righteous.
0: Yeah, and that's why, yeah, I, I I have a tangent in my head. I have about five tangents I don't want to go off on. Okay, so what I want to do in this series, Matt, is I want to tell the story of Martin Luther, you and I. I want us to tell it as sympathetically as we can. I want to tell it as one who nearly worshipped Luther for decades, although he wasn't the only one. Calvin was actually more my man. And this isn't really hard for me to do, um, that is to tell it in a sympathetic way. I want to tell the story of Martin Luther as Lutheran Schools, uh, uh, children in school learn it, um, as my children did. In fact, my my son completed elementary school at a local Lutheran school. My daughter was at a Lutheran school all the way through, at least the I believe the junior her junior year of high school. So, I want to tell the story with that kind of sympathy, but then I want to also go on and tell parts of the story that Lutheran school children do not hear, um, and then to you know to quote Paul Harvey again. I want to tell
1: (laughs) the rest of the story.
0: Okay, yeah, you do a better job than I do. I don't know know what page we're on at this point. As we begin to get into some of the details of Luther's life, I'm going to have to adhere pretty closely to my notes, and I apologize to some if it seems like I'm almost reading. But I want the facts to be clear, and I want them to be accurate, so I I don't want to just preach off the top of my head about it. Okay, some, some early facts. Luther was born on November 10th, 1483 in the German village of Eisleben. Now, as was the custom at the time, his parents brought him to St. Peter's Church the very next day to be baptized. That's how it was done at the time, the very next day. He was baptized Martin because it was the feast day of St. Martin of Tours. The Luthers were tough German peasants. Hans, that is Martin's father, he was the son of a farmer. Soon after Martin's birth, he moved the family to from Eisleben to Mansfeld, where he worked in a copper mine. And he was pretty prosperous, and over time, it appears that he came to own several copper uh, refineries or foundries, whatever the correct word is for that. Uh, it appears that Luther had eight siblings, although only one brother and three sisters made it to adulthood. Um In the 20th century, you mentioned Roland Bainton. He was the professor of ecclesiastical history at Yale University, and he wrote the classic Luther biography, Here I Stand. And I want to read a bit from Bainton's description of the time and the place, the culture into which Luther was born, because he paints such a a colorful vision of it, and it's so different from what we're used to. Um, So allow me to read it so you can get kind of an image of what it would have been like for Martin Luther to grow up where he grew up at the time, um, in the late 15th century and early 16th century in Germany. Certain elements, even of the old paganism, were blended with Christian mythology and the beliefs of these untutored folk. For them, the woods and winds and water were peopled by elves, gnomes, fairies, mermen and mermaids, sprites and witches. Sinister spirits would release storms, floods, and pestilence and would seduce mankind to sin and melancholia. Luther's mother believed that they played such minor pranks as stealing eggs or milk or butter. And Luther himself was never emancipated from such beliefs. Quoting Luther now, many regions are inhabited by devils. Prussia is full of them and Lapland of witches. In my native country on the top of a high mountain called the Publesburg, is a lake from which, if a stone be thrown, a tempest will arise over the whole region because the waters are the abode of captive demons. little more, okay? In the elementary schools, the children were instructed in sacred song. They attended masses and vespers. They took part in colorful pre- uh, processions on holy days. Each town in which Luther went to school was full of churches and monasteries. Everywhere it was the same, steeples, spires, cloisters, priests, monks of various orders, collections of relics, ringing of bells, proclaiming of indulgences, religion, religious processions, cures at shrines. Daily at Mansfeld, the sick were stationed beside a convent in the hope of cure at the tolling of the Vesper Bell. Luther remembered seeing a devil actually depart from one of the possessed. Okay? This is like kind of an image of the world that he grew up in, in the the, the part of Germany that's referred to as Thuringia. So this is a peasant world, a peasant life, filled with all of these sorts of thoughts. Now Luther's mother and his father though, they saw very early how tremendously bright their son Martin was, and they took steps for him to get the best education that he could get. He first attended a Latin school in Mansfeld where Latin was taught by memorization and it was coupled with strict punishments for those who failed. A student who blew it was forced to sit in the corner of the room wearing a goat's head for the day. This stuff doesn't maybe fit in exactly with, how, how, you know, with modern pedagogy, right? You know, But Luther later commented, he said that at school, quoting Luther, at school I was caned in one morning 15 times for nothing at all. No, maybe it was nothing at all, but even if he was doing something, Caned fifteen times in one morning. At the age of thirteen, Luther attended a school called the Brothers for Living Together. It was a boarding school in in Magdeburg. And when he was fourteen years old, the parish school in Eisenach, where Luther lived for a time. Okay, although Luther was extremely bright and he was obviously good in all of his studies, it seems that his favorite subject was music, which I which I didn't know. But but Luther learned to play the lute. Apparently, he was proficient at playing the lute. Um, He later on wrote songs, he wrote hymns, some of them became very famous. In fact, some argue that Luther is the father of modern congregational singing because he strongly believed in the power of music to teach theology and to move the hearts of his people. By the way, he gave away his lute when he entered the monastery in 1505. One more step in his education. In 1501, at the age of 17, Luther entered the university at Erfurt, which was one of the finest German universities at the time. It attracted students from all over Germany and even beyond Germany throughout Europe. In fact, it was a common saying at the time that, quote, he who would study rightly must go to Erfurt, unquote. So let me me tie this together. Hans and Margareta, Luther's parents, they had extremely high hopes for their extremely brilliant, naturally gifted son, they were hoping that he would use his intelligence to make a career in law, that he would become a lawyer and be in a position to support them in their old age. But this was not uh, the course that Martin was to take, as we all know. At the age of 21, returning to the university after visiting his family, a dramatic event occurred that Marked a turning point in his life. And I want to read this from Bainton one, just one more time reading Bainton because he begins his biography with this story and the way he describes this key event in Luther's life. I think it it can give us powerfully a sense of how the entire story of Martin Luther has taken on the feel of legend um, within Protestantism. Listen to how he starts his book on a sultry day in July of the year 1505. A lonely traveler was trudging over a parched road on the outskirts of the Saxon village of Stotternheim. He was a young man, short but sturdy, and wore the dress of a university student. As he approached the village, the sky became overcast. Suddenly there was a shower, then a crashing storm. A bolt of lightning rived the the gloom and knocked the man to the ground. Struggling to rise, he cried in terror, St. Anne, help me. I will become a monk. (laughs) The man who thus called upon a saint was later to repudiate the cult of the saints. He who vowed to become a monk was later to renounce monasticism. A loyal son of the Catholic Church, he was later to shatter the structure of medieval Catholicism. A devoted servant of the Pope, he was later to identify the popes with the Antichrist. For this young man was Martin Luther.
1: Wow. There you go. Roll the title screen. I mean, it's, this is, when you, when you hear, you know, Luther described like that, and I remember reading that passage from, uh, from Bainton, you know, opening up the book when Uh we were, you know, required to read it and it reads more like a novel than it does like a history book. Right. And it's kind of hard to know where your history ends and the, the legendarium begins when you're reading the story of Luther. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it, Who wouldn't think to themselves, I mean, what an impressive human being. This is a man of conviction. This is a man who comes from from humble means, from difficult means, and he stands on his conviction and changes the world. I mean, again Yeah,
0: and keep in mind. Unless you've been trained to
1: understand that what he did was bad, then you're gonna you're gonna develop a sympathy here.
0: Yeah, and do keep in mind that Roland Bainton was the professor of ecclesiastical history at Yale, and so uh, his book is well researched. Uh, the reason it's so readable is he was just happened to be a great great writer as well. So yeah, it comes off like a novel. But you're right, and unless you have been trained to um, believe that Luther was bad in some way or that his teaching was false, you could be taken in, right, by this story. Like, like you said, roll the credits, man. This is amazing, or not roll the credits? Isn't that the end? Of a movie, or it's the, the film. title screen. This is the beginning. Okay, it's the prologue. Well, okay, and then so, kaboom. Yeah. Okay, so this so this was the turning point. Saint Anne, help me! I will become a monk. Now, Luther later repudiated the decision that he made that day, and in fact, he he later insisted that that the call he received that day was a call from the devil, but at the time he viewed it as a call from God. And Luther, I mean, strong willed, maybe you'd say impulsive. Sort of reminding one of like Peter, in a sense, in the, in the Gospels, you know, in terms of personality. Um, he wasted no time in acting upon what he believed to be a call from God. He spent only two weeks putting his affairs in order. His friends threw him a, a farewell party. And the next morning, his friends accompanied him to the gates of the Augustinian Monastery in Erfurt, uh, where Luther, uh, you know, flamboyantly said to them, you see me today and never again. Quote unquote. Now, Luther's parents were infuriated when they found out what what Martin had done, and we're going to come back to that a little bit next week. They were infuriated by his decision because they had plans for him. He was to finish university, he was to become an attorney, he was to be able to support them in their old age, and suddenly they hear Martin has given away his loot and dropped everything and walked into an Augustinian monastery, and it it, it was the strictest sect of the Augustinians in Germany at the time too. So they were infuriated. And this raises an interesting question, the question that I want to pursue in the remainder of the time that we have here in this first episode. Why did Luther decide so suddenly to become a monk? And, And this will be some speculation, but it's an interesting question too. Why did Luther decide so quickly to leave the path that he had been on um, the path that his parents had put him on to abandon all of their hopes and dreams and become a monk. He doesn't appear to have discussed it with his friends. In fact, for, from everything we know, everyone around him was shocked by his decision and tried to talk him out of it. So why did he do it? And I want to work through three points here that I think are instructive. First of all, it is clear that Luther already had some attraction to the monastic life. So, so this is part of the picture. This wasn't something that came entirely out of the blue, as it might seem to those who just read the account. You know, a storm hits, he falls down, St. Anne, help me, and I will become a monk. There is a historical context to it. And 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 I think back to that first quotation I read from Roland Bainton, where he's describing the culture in which Martin was raised. I mean, you and I can walk around for months and never run into a monk on the streets, I don't know. Do you see very many monks in D.C.?
1: I see the occasional monk. Actually, you know what? I see the occasional friar. I I very rarely see a monk.
0: Okay, well, I don't either. I I live near L.A. and if I ever see a monk walking down the road, road, I assume that I've stumbled onto a movie set or something. We don't see them. But at the time that Martin lived, you know, as Bainton had said, there were monks everywhere. There were friars everywhere. Everywhere you looked, there were steeples and churches and processions and the ringing of bells and all that. So monks were everywhere. Even as a teenager, Martin had seen these saints in the streets, and he had been drawn to their holiness, even as a teenager. In fact, later in life, he describes a particular event, a particular saint that he had seen as a boy, who was a well-known prince at the time, who apparently had left everything to beg on the streets. And this is how Martin described him later in life. With my own eyes, I saw him. I was 14 years old at Magdeburg. I saw him carrying the sack like a donkey. He had so worn himself down by fasting and vigil that he looked like a death's head, mere bone and skin. No one could look upon him without feeling ashamed of his own life. Very interesting image, isn't it? Amazing image. But Luther remembers taking a seeing this and he says, no one could look at this man without being ashamed of his own life. So worn down by fasting and vigils, which is something we don't see much anymore. I don't want to go off on the tangent of trying to, dis, uh, to trying to critique that way of life, um, but the point is made. There was some attraction there. There had been some attraction in Luther's life from the time that he was a young boy. But secondly, it was also a practical matter, Matt. You see, at the time, it was common belief in the culture at the time that the surest straightest route to heaven was the monastic path. It was living out the discipline of the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. In fact, it was said at the time, it, it, these are some kind of funny images. It was said at the time that a monk who died wearing his cowl could expect to receive special treatment at the gates of paradise. Okay. Sort of like the easy pass system that we, that we see on toll roads. Okay. If a monk were to die wearing his cowl, boom, boom, He's got the easy pass. In fact, there, there was a story told of a particular Cistercian monk. Let me start that over again. Say that five Excel. times
1: fast there, Ken. Cistercian. Cistercian. You should say it this time like Sylvester yeah. from Looney Tunes. Cistercian.
0: There was a story told of a Cistercian monk who was sick, and in a high fever, he took off his cowl and then died before he could get it back on, okay? And so as the story went, he went to heaven, and yet because he appeared at the gates out of uniform, you know, as it were, uh, he wasn't allowed in. And so up in heaven, he has to wander around the outside, as it were, looking through the windows at the, at the festivities going on in heaven until someone had mercy on him, someone interceded for him, and he was allowed to return to earth to gather up his cowl and uh, make his way back to paradise. That was a story All this is that well documented because outside.
1: you know several journalists were on the scene for uh, for this event. You know, this Looking was old, videotaped. It was videotaped. <laughs> um, yeah, you can it see it. it
0: on you can see it on Twitter. But you know, it's the kind I've of story. It,
1: it, it when you hear a, a story like that about you know the, the legend of the Cistercian monk who did this, and you hear it coming from a place where people thought there were elves in the woods and demons in the ponds. You know, you mm-hmm. start to realize that you know this is part of a sort of a kind of imagination that uh that sort of drives things that you know again this is a pre-scientific era i mean there's some science right but there's like a kind of an imagination mm-hmm. um that there's the world is kind of alive in different ways than it is for us yeah, on today. the one hand and, you know there's a scientific explanation yeah. for
0: everything well you know on the one hand yeah you know they be- on the one hand they believed in a supernatural world and we have a difficult time with it now because you know uh supposedly at least science has explained everything But anyway, move on. Okay, so so why did Luther do this is what we're asking. And we know that he had some attraction to it. We know that in the culture, it was secondly, it was also taught that the life of a monk was the surest, straightest route to heaven. And then thirdly, which is really most important, I think, here to talk about, there was more. Because later in life, on more than one occasion, Matt, Luther actually spoke about why he had entered the monastery. He, He actually talked about it. And when he spoke of why he had entered the monastery, he didn't focus on the holiness of the monks that he had seen as a child or a young man, and he didn't focus on the desire to get to heaven on the fast track. Um, what he emphasizes is something entirely different, and I, I need to include a couple of quotations here. On one occasion, Luther is reported to have said to his students, and I'm quoting now, my mother came to me for stealing a nut until the blood came. Such strict discipline drove me to the monastery, although she meant well. On another occasion, we have Luther saying this, My father once whipped me so that I ran away and felt ugly toward him till he was at pains to win me back. The serious and austere life that they led with me caused me to enter a monastery and become a monk. In fact, looking back many, many years later, at one point, at his parents' severity with him, he says he he tells us that that their severity had quote shattered my nervous system unquote. Okay, so he had an attraction to the monastic life. It was well known at the time that if you wanted to get to heaven, become a monk. But also, what what Luther said in a number of different ways, a number of different times, was that. His nervous system had been shattered by the way that he felt that he was raised. And he says specifically, this is what drove him to the monastery. Now, it's clear at the same time from other things that Luther said, and we're gonna be seeing some of those, that Luther loved his mother. Luther loved his father. And he understood that what they had done, they had done with best intentions in mind. Their motives were good for him. But it's also very clear to anyone reading Luther's life, I would say, that his experiences growing up the strictness of some of the education he received, the severity of his parents, and especially the relationship that he had with his father were the cause of struggles that Luther would have with anxiety and with depression throughout his life. And this is going to come back and we're going to see more of it in the future. But here's sort of the, the, uh, the last touch that I want to put on it too. I also think that it's clear that this had an effect on how Luther viewed God. I think that it instilled in Luther, and this wasn't the only cause. There were other things in the culture of the time and the way that God was presented at the time to instill fear. But I think that this, that is his relationship with his father, his upbringing, he comes out and says it basically. This instilled in Luther a vision of God as severe, as demanding, as one impossible to please. And this vision of God would drive him into the monastery because he was afraid. And he he didn't know how he could ever possibly get to heaven. But this is also a vision of God, Matt, that I believe, and I'll I'll try to show this later, but that I believe would later drive him to his doctrine of justification by faith alone. It, It would drive him to a doctrine of justification that specifically answered his anxiety and his concern and his depression yeah. but you're gonna to have to stay tuned for part two for that
1: yeah i mean if you if you feel that you serve a god or are under a father who is impossible to please what if you made it to where you had this whole system of thought that says it doesn't matter whether you please them or not <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, yeah. it's nothing you do. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of things that can flow forth from this, but um, as you're mentioning yeah. this attraction to the monastery and the severity, I, I feel like this is a time for me to bring out a little show and tell item. And I think I might've shown this on a previous sure. episode. Uh, I'll probably refer to this actually a few times, uh, not as mm-hmm. often as you refer to Bainton. Um But when Jim Anderson was in uh, Wittenberg in Germany, Jim Anderson, who works for us here at the coming home network, uh, mm-hmm. he was there in germany for the 500th anniversary of the reformation um and he brought me back a souvenir he brought me back a comic book martin luther uh a monk changes the world and this is supposed to be a pro luther book even though that's the devil whispering in his ear it just kind of goes to some of the stuff that we'll get into later about martin luther feeling he was constantly being under attack under spiritual warfare but in this section yeah on the monastery luther enters these augustans of the strict observance and uh
0: the augustans
1: here he is and he's saying well he he's ha- having such a hard time connecting with god here and he says well how do i come closer to god my brothers and the one guy says um i fast for two weeks and drink only water i try to get close to god by going without sleep i sit in the cold until i can't feel anything more anymore and then i feel it when it went with the divine i chastise myself for my sins and then Luther's like, well, things like that don't help to bring me closer to God, right? <laughs> God, tell me what I should do. And then, of course, the next chapter is, is titled Enlightenment. So you can tell. That, that, the, that's the a great that's been segue.
0: You. That's a great segue into next week's episode where we're going to talk about Luther's time in the, in the monastery. Yeah, that's great.
1: That's great. So there you have it. This is the popular. This is the, this is the comic, but that's how the comic book version of it. This is. Uh, that's how it's pitched. But again, you can see already, uh, I don't know about you, but this makes me think, you know, I may disagree with the guy, but I I sense some sort of feeling for the man, you know? The more you get to know him, and this oh. is how most historical figures are, right? You can't just yeah. cut them out of context yeah. and present them merely as a, an arrangement of ideas. These are human beings, and human beings don't come to things mm-hmm. in a, out of a vacuum.
0: You know, you, you mentioned the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. I was invited to come to Germany for the 500th anniversary to uh, help lead a tour and to teach on the Reformation and Luther's life. And as the first time that I had seen those places like Wittenberg and, and Marburg and all the other places, the castle, you know, yeah, talk about affection. I was moved again to see these places because they had such historical resonance and importance in my in my early life. Although I was teaching at the time about Luther's life and also about mistakes that were made in the reformation, but anyway, totally relate to what you're saying.
1: Well, we better we'll record other here. episodes because if we don't record yeah. other episodes and and just leave it here, then everybody's going to be completely confused about what this show is. So, That's in the right. meantime, <laughs> Definitely come and visit us at chnetwork.org. Um, that's the main website for the Coming Home Network. Lots and lots of resources. Lots and lots of old episodes of On the Journey there as well. Uh, you can also go to our online community, community.chnetwork.org. We would love to see you in there and connect, especially if you uh, you can, can relate to this experience of, of Luther um, and the way that you were kind of formed to understand him. And then, of course, you can always go to chnetwork.org and then click on the Donate button if you want to support our work. In the meantime, I'm Matt Swayam, Ken Hensley, thank you again.
0: See you next week, Matt.
1: Paul Harvey, good day.